God's grace, peace, mercy, and compassion be upon you on this second Sunday after Pentecost. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Seems like an ageless question Paul asks here in his letter to Rome. Seems like a very appropriate question right now, doesn't it? With the country, I mean, even the whole world demanding justice. Paul, however, isn't talking about the kind of human justice which throughout the ages and countless civilizations tries to sort out the messiness of people treating each other badly. No, it's something else. Interestingly, this justice that Paul is talking about does have something to do with race, Israel, and everyone else. Paul argues, how can it be that the good news for the Jews first has failed in its appeal to Israel to believe the Messiah is here? It hasn't. It hasn't failed, he says. One doesn't get saved by the Messiah simply for being an Israelite by birth. Israel is many people, too many to count, but they're not all the children of Abraham. Not all of them have the promise. And the same goes for other peoples of the world. They too have been grafted into Israel, adopted into the family of God, but not all of them are called the children of God. Which brings us to Paul's seldom heard on Sunday question. Is it unjust if God chooses one over another to be saved? He answers, and this is the way it's translated in the Greek, no way. I know some English translations have uh, not at all, but it's like, no way. So let's take a closer look at these verses together. And if you're at home, I recommend you get your Bible or your Bible app on your phone and turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 14. This is pretty early in Paul's missionary life. Jesus came to Paul and converted him to believe in the year 36. In the year 45, Paul began his first missionary journey with Barnabas. In 52 through 55, he goes on his third missionary journey and writes this letter to Christians, Jews, and Gentiles in Rome. Now, he hasn't actually been to Rome yet. Uh, His first visit to Rome will come a few years later, but most likely through letters, you know, correspondence with various groups of people over there, Paul gets wind that there's a lot of arguing and division going on amongst these new believers in Christ as to what saves. Christ and his work, or one's own effort at attaining righteousness. Not only that, but Paul is way down in the dumps that so many of his fellow Jews are not believing that the Messiah has come in Christ. He's heartbroken over this. But he keeps his chin up in the spirit and expects that his fellow Jews are going to write back to him arguing that God must be an unjust God. If he chooses to save Greeks over the children of Abraham, you know, they're, they're, he expects them to write and say, you, you expect us to believe blood relatives of David and his house are left to nothing over those lost people in 
Arabia? Well, it would seem so, according to Paul. But get this, as if it weren't bad enough today that we fit God into our way of thinking, you know, box him into our standards of justice and fairness and so on, well, Paul counters the same problem in his day. He says God is free to do as he wills. God has freedom. He's not bound to our wills and whims. And he uses the exchange between God and Moses from Exodus where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Can't make God have compassion and mercy on you by exerting your own strength or holy living or high spiritual thought. Pharaoh of Egypt is a prime example of this. Poor Pharaoh. Man, I mean, how this guy got flogged by God in order that God's signs and wonders and glory would be shown through that beaten up man. Pharaoh didn't know the God of the Hebrews, but he wanted to let Israel go. Remember, as early as the plague of frogs, Frogs were everywhere, in every corner of everyone's home, leaping around, and that was enough for Pharaoh. Let him go. You guys can go. Get out of here and tell your God to get rid of these frogs. But we know the rest of the story. When the frogs were piled up and burned, and things quieted down again, and things started to return to normal, God hardened Pharaoh's heart And Pharaoh changed his mind before the Israelites left. Did this in order that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Now Paul would have made a good chess player. He thinks a couple of moves ahead. The believers in Rome might accept his argument to some degree, but they might come back with this. If God decides who lives by faith and dies by unbelief, then who can resist his will? How is anyone responsible then for themselves? The wicked and evil person is simply that because God wills it. The righteous person has no virtue or merit in themselves because it was simply God who decided that ahead of time. Paul doesn't attempt to dig into the mind of God to answer this. What he does is similar to what I talked to the kids about in my message to them. Paul squashes any temptation on our part to put God on trial for what we perceive as injustice on his part. And who would have known that Paul would give so many science fiction writers of the last 150 years creative inspiration with this Potter and clay illustration. You remember what it was like. Those days in school when it was the day to make something out of clay, right? And I don't mean Play-Doh. I mean the real stuff with water. And maybe your teacher even had a pottery wheel where you could magically form your creation from the ground up with your fingers. What if the bowl that you made, or in my case, the ashtray from my mom, formed a little mouth on it, little eyes, after you were done making it. And it said to you, if it looked up and said to you, 
Why did you make me this way? You would have freaked out, right? That's a nightmare. But uh, Paul knows this. It's an impossible, ridiculous situation, right? Yet, we get some great stories and movies about this kind of things. Most of them about computers, you know, our creation gone haywire. Remember Hal from 2001 has a crisis of life complex, crisis of mission. Colossus, the giant computer that's supposed to end all wars, uh, also has a crisis of, of morals, right? And then the old classic Frankenstein. You know, Frankenstein doesn't specifically say, why did you make me? But he, the point of the story is that he, he turns to his creator, Dr. Frankenstein, and in, 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 in so many ways says, why did you make me like this? I'm hideous. Nobody wants me. Paul uses this notion to knock us on the head and say, God has the right as our maker, you know, as the potter, because we are the clay, to carry out his plans and his desires for his creation as he sees fit. For whatever reason that's beyond our comprehension, we're not to be so arrogant as to ask him why, in why, in what we think He's been making, you know, he's been wrong in making us this way, something like that. You know, we can ask him why we are and what's our purpose because he's already answered that. He made us so that we would know him and he would know us. He made us for a relationship. And it's not a relationship without mercy and love and compassion either. Just the opposite. God's all-embracing love for the whole human race from its beginning to eternity through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, rules out any injustice on His part. It rules it out. But we get it. I get it. To some it might seem Paul is giving the standard parent-type answer to a child who incessantly asks, Why? Stop asking. It's not for you to know, and that kind of thing. A kind of cop-out for the church, because we can't answer tough questions. But really, these words are to give us comfort and ease of mind. Otherwise, we're going to be racking our brains trying to figure out the hidden things of God in his heart and mind. We realize God's answers to these kinds of questions don't satisfy the naysayer or the unbeliever. And even to the faithful, may be an item of doubt for a lifetime. Nevertheless, you and I are creatures of mercy. And we have come from all walks of life, different cultures, different languages, different races, different thoughts and experiences. Paul makes the simple distinction of Jews and Gentiles, but that assumes all those things I mentioned and more. The point is, creatures of mercy come from within both those realms of people, Jew and Gentile. And if the tribes of Israel, who had abandoned God so many times, if they can be restored to God, back to Him, so can everyone else who'd never known God before, they can also be recipients of His mercy. That's God's justice. And there's so much more to say here, but time is getting short. So let's move along a little more to verse 30. 
It was confusing for the Jews at the time who had come to believe in Jesus that the Gentiles could also be counted as righteous because Gentiles just didn't have Abraham and Moses and the prophets and the law and the temple and everything God had given Israel. That The Gentiles were outside of all of that. You know, the Gentile nations, whether they be the Canaanites or the Assyrians or the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, They'd been so purposefully ungodly for so many centuries with their idols and pagan sacrifices. This was a stumbling block for the Jews in believing God's righteousness is given, not earned. Now the Jews were partly right and that a person's pursuit to obey the law of God is not a bad thing or wrong. Your neighbor will certainly benefit from it. It's just that a right standing with God is not achieved by obeying the commandments. It's only by grace, through faith, given to us by God. Faith takes hold of Christ who died for us and raised us for our justification according to his good and gracious will. God raised Pharaoh that he would be glorified, that God would be glorified. He raised us to justify us and give us life forever that's his just will now there's so much more i haven't even, i haven't even gotten to the first part of chapter 10 so i'll 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 leave you with this thought in light of studying this text this week and pondering what it means for us today the images of the, of the last few weeks keep coming up in my mind particularly the ones of the really angry aggressive demonstrators who hurl such foul insults and seem to have no peace in their lives. I mean, I I get that people are angry. I get that people have reached a boiling point. But there's a righteous anger, and then there's also just plain sin. And I see angry mobs with such hate, and you wonder how hard the Holy Spirit has to work against such resistance, against such sin and hard-heartedness. Having heard what you heard today from God through this little part of Paul's letter, I hope it doesn't seem that God's will to save some over others doesn't seem arbitrary. You know, oh, God said, I'll I'll save this person, nah, I won't save that one. I'll save this one, I won't save that one. It's, It's not some abstract philosophy from Paul. He's communicating a deep concern to the Christian community in Rome about the Jews. He's one of them. Well, he's both now, right? He's a Jew and a Christian. He cares for them. They're his family. How difficult it was for him to help his fellow countrymen overcome their stumbling block to faith as it is for the church today to communicate the gospel to those who congregate in angry mobs and hurl obscenities. And I don't mean just to the authorities, I mean to each other. They devour themselves. But the thing is, we would too. If it weren't for the saving, regenerating power of Jesus Christ in our lives. My calling is to speak God's word into the situation we find ourselves in, whether it be a pandemic, riots, racial tension, what have you. There's always something going on. Last Sunday I did that. I spoke my 
but I also spoke a little bit of my own view of what the solution could be to this current situation, and do you remember what that was? Yes. Something like that. (laughs) Something like if more people had the saving grace of Jesus and faith in their lives and let him bend their thoughts and deeds more to his direction, there would be a lot less of what's going on now. And I'm compelled by Scripture to maintain that opinion, but in light of today's reading, you might say, well, it's not going to get better because, well, God's just decided then who's righteous and who's not, right? Isn't that what we just heard? Not exactly like that. Yes, God chooses who he has mercy and compassion on, but we don't always know when he does. You could have looked at me from birth to 31 years and said, well, it doesn't seem like God has compassion on him. But I had a few more years left on my life. And even though I was a child of God's wrath before my baptism, I don't know if he didn't have mercy and compassion on me before that. I mean, was it just luck that I survived long enough to receive faith and be baptized? The same goes for you in your life. Same with the person whom we may not even know yet. Maybe even one who spouts evil from their hearts now. We don't know. But we don't shirk from the task of proclaiming Christ because we have him to pilot us. So we go forth in the name of Christ together through this ever-changing world for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, righteousness to everyone who believes. In him we trust. We will not be put to shame. Amen.